0: So many people are aware of the fact that William Wilberforce was the man God used to abolish the atrocity of the African slave trade in England during the, the late 1700s and early 1800s, and Many people may know that Wilberforce's faith in Christ was the driver of his, of his convictional re- resolve to act despite great personal risk to himself. What fewer people realize is that though Wilberforce had been exposed to Christianity when he was younger, he was already a member of parliament when he came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. His newly found faith in Jesus created tremendous tension for Wilberforce. So much so, he thought that his faith in Christ would require that he step down from his position in government. But during this difficult time, this sobering time, Wilberforce went to see a very good friend, a man named William Pitt, who was also the prime minister. In a conversation at his home under an old oak tree, Pitt exhorted Wilberforce with these words, "'Do not lose time, or the ground will be occupied by another.'" One of his biographers summarized Wilberforce's mindset like this. What Pitt said was true enough for if, as Wilberforce thought, God himself was calling him to this task and he shrank from it, God too could find another to do it and he surely would. This conversation helped to to galvanize Wilberforce's thinking that God had actually placed him in parliament and called him to faith during this very consequential moment in history precisely for such a time as this. In today's passage, another government figure has found herself placed in a position where she might be able to help even to rescue many others, but at, at great risk to herself, what will she decide to do at such a time as this? Our passage this morning is Esther chapter 4. So here the word... of the only true God who welcomes us into his presence because of our union with his beloved son. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, so recall that an decree or an edict has gone out from the king Declaring the absolute annihilation of the Jewish people. And after it goes out, this final verse here of chapter 3, the king and, and Haman sit down to drink and presumably to feast. While the entire city of Susa is thrown into confusion. So when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatak went to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know That if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king. Though it is against the law, And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Lead us by your spirit, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. So in Esther 4, we begin to realize that what first appeared to be the subtle sovereignty of God is increasingly becoming the spectacular sovereignty of God on full display, whether God's name is specifically mentioned or not. Now, over the past few weeks, we've been refining our understanding of his sovereignty as we've progressed through the book. We started off recognizing, recognizing that even when God's Providence is hidden, God is a very present help in the time of need. Then we built another layer on top of that foundational truth. Seeing that not only is God able to help in difficult circumstances, God is actually able to work through morally corrupt circumstances and through morally corrupt people to accomplish his holy and redemptive purposes. Now, let's add another layer on top of that. God is not only able to work through morally corrupt situations and people, God actually places imperfect people in imperfect situations at the perfect time to accomplish his perfect plans. That's really the over. All theme of Esther 4. God places imperfect people in imperfect situations at the perfect time to accomplish his perfect plans. So before we move on, just let that sink in for a moment. We might say that, that God, Mary may very well have not only planned, but perfectly timed whatever situation in your life feels really messy right now. So that in the midst of that messiness, he would accomplish exactly what he desires to accomplish in you and through you in obedience according to his word. Just think about how it changes your perspective in a difficult situation, to remember that God has actually placed you there in your circumstance so that his plans would be accomplished. His plans to make you holy like Jesus and his plans to bring glory and honor to his name. If you get that, that is a category reframing idea to consider. Now, God's subtle sovereignty is becoming more and more spectacular scene by scene in Esther. So we'll progress through our passage like this. We'll take some time to think through the mourning that's happening in verses 1 through 3, in verses 4 through 11, there's there's a lot of messaging that's just happening back and forth here inside the gate and outside the gate. So we'll look at some of the texts that Esther and Mordecai are sending to each other here. And then in verses 12 through 17, we will take some time to think about Esther's mediating work. So, as chapter 4 opens, recall that the description of mass mourning is in response to what I just read earlier, or what I just referenced earlier, that at the end of chapter 3, an edict has been sent out throughout the entire empire. An edict that calls for the complete annihilation of the Jewish people. An edict ratified by the king's signet ring. And its authority. And an edict celebrated with wine. And presumably feasting. By Haman and King Ashuerus. Think about what's going on here. Have you ever received. Really. Really bad news. It can be. Bad news can not only be disheartening, it can, it can actually be disorienting depending on the severity of the news. But even if you have received news like that, I think it may still be almost impossible for us to understand what it would have felt like to hear that a death sentence had been issued for you for your entire family and for all your people and that a destruction date had been set in stone just imagine the stress imagine the the sadness Imagine the seething anger that you would feel as as you looked at your family and your friends when the signet-ratified proclamation from the king was read aloud in your province. Whatever the level of mourning is that we see here, what we know is that it's completely appropriate given the rather unimaginable circumstances. The fact that that full-blown mourning broke out everywhere 11 months before the actual date of destruction, it just underscores how, how absolutely certain the annihilation of the people of God actually was. There is no hope of appeal to some kind of supreme court. There is no help coming from another nation. There is no possibility of diplomacy. There is no possibility of military intervention. Persia was by far the most dominant empire on earth. No other nation could influence them and no other nation could threaten them. And in the book of Esther, Perhaps most poignantly, there is still no mention of God. The pending doom of the Jews was as sure as the rising sun. Therefore, the people mourn in sackcloth and Ashes in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, they they were lying down and, and essentially covering themselves with ash, returning to dust, as it were, completely identifying. With the imagery of death. Now, notice in verse one that Mordecai was mourning in the city streets and then he mourned up to the entrance of the king's gate. Verse two, but that no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. That's really interesting. Why would that be the case? Recall that the the king likes only shiny, happy, and preferably curvaceous people to be in his presence. No one was allowed to disrupt the fragile bubble insulating the king. Think about not only how ridiculous that is. Think about how callous it is. Perhaps the only reality more callous than that policy is that Haman and the king are drinking wine and feasting while the entire city of Susa was thrown into confusion, not to mention the whole empire and all of its provinces, after the devastating decree was issued, chapter 3 and verse 15. What kind of a leader, what kind of a king is this? Uh, Several years ago, I read a traumatizing book, actually, by a man who had been severely abused in his home as a child. His abuse involved a number of heinous actions by his mother. But the most powerful moment of the book to me was when the author said, the most emotionally and psychologically damaging aspect of everything I endured was that while mom was hurting me in vile and in degrading ways, Dad was just sitting a few feet away in his recliner, reading his paper, amusing himself with comics, and sipping on a drink completely unaffected by the moral horror that was unfolding before him. King Xerxes demonstrates the same intentionally oblivious and horrifying posture toward the precious people that are under his care. What type of king is this? Ashuerus or Xerxes is the type of king who, who drinks wine, biblically symbolic of life and of joy, and he feasts. While his people wallow in the dirt and fast, wailing over and lamenting his passive but fully culpable approval of their utter destruction, it kind of makes you long for a greater king, does it not? Compare the indifferent hatred of Xerxes toward his people to the, to the fully engaged love demonstrated by King Jesus toward his precious people. Xerxes can't be bothered with even a, a whiff, even a whiff of misery. It's all only happiness and beauty in the fantasy land of fake majesty immediately surrounding the king. But both the king's attitude and his actions show that he actually despises and even rejects the people of his kingdom. But Isaiah tells us that God's servant, the Lord's Christ, that is King Jesus, was himself despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. He was as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and and we esteemed him not. But how could one so glorious be despised? Why would one so glorious allow himself to be rejected? But the the prophet answers for us, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But do you see what Isaiah is saying? He's saying, we looked at Jesus and said, you cursed creep. We looked at him and said, God had it out for you. Your grief and your sorrow, your affliction proves that is true. Only it wasn't. What we often forget is that all of the misery Jesus was carrying belonged to us, not to Him. He willingly entered into our pain and willingly carried it for us. He willingly hoisted it upon his own shoulders. Not only that, Jesus willingly left the true beauty and true majesty surrounding the incomparable glory of his invincible throne. His glory was actually real. And he left that to meet us here. Again, why? Because that's what it took to identify with us as his people, to lovingly represent us, so that he could mediate on our behalf before God. That's what it took for our sins to be forgiven. That's what it took to bear our guilt and our shame. King Jesus was willingly pierced for our transgressions. He was willingly crushed for our iniquities. Upon Himself, He willingly bore the chastisement, that is, the severe rebuke, the just punishment, the, the full weight of the law, and He bore. On himself, all of the grossness of all of the iniquity, of all of the law violations, of all of his people who have ever been or ever will be redeemed. Holy Jesus became the blackness. Of the curse. Jesus, gentle and lowly, fully absorbed the ferocious nature of God's all powerful wrath against sin. Upon Jesus was placed the crushing weight of a perfectly concentrated hell. And through that willing act on the cross, he brought us peace with God. Xerxes passively feasted and drank wine apart from the people to celebrate his destruction of the people. Jesus drank the full wine cup of God's wrath to actively redeem his beloved people. In fact, Jesus promised to never drink wine again until he could drink it anew with his people in his kingdom at the marriage feast of the lamb what kind of king is jesus he's a king who bears the burdens of his people not a king who creates burdens for his people he is a king who doesn't sin against his people by by hoarding beauty He's a king who takes the sinful ugliness of his people and clothes them with his radiant beauty. Jesus is a king who receives his people into his presence, not one who rejects them from his presence. He is a king most worthy of honor and love and praise forever. And as the people of God, we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. First Timothy 4 and verse 10. But for now, in Persia, because of the character of another king, there is deep and painful and pervasive mourning among the people of God. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to a tenter and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatek went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that happened. What's Perhaps the most surprising of this particular section is that Esther seems to be the only person in the kingdom who has no idea what's going on, but such is the bubble, such is the bubble of false reality that surrounds those closest to the king. In Esther's specific case, it highlights the degree to which this imperfect woman is separated from the experience of her people in an imperfect situation. But as this section progresses, there is messaging that goes back and forth between Esther and Mordecai. She is deeply distressed, but it's clear that she doesn't really understand the full weight of what is happening. So Mordecai first relays the details of the overwhelming amount of money Haman was willing to pay in order to have the Jews exterminated. Verse 7. But when we think about this, Let me offer a quick reminder to recalibrate your hearts around the truth. Even today, God can defeat the wickedest plans funded by the wealthiest people. So don't ever think, don't ever think that this kingdom has the upper hand. It doesn't matter how wealthy someone is or how many wealthy people pool themselves together. Are they richer than God? Do they have more resources than God? It doesn't matter how powerful they seem or how much the deck seems to be stacked against him. Our God is all-powerful. It is as nothing to him. He can do whatever he pleases. Now, Mordecai, he also sends a copy of the actual edict, verse 8, so that Esther would understand how dire the situation actually is. Haytack then tells her everything, including Mordecai's desperate and his, his forceful command to go to the king to intercede on behalf of the people, verses 9 And 10, here the tension of Esther's dilemma reaches a fevered pitch. Verse 11, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Esther knows the law. Apparently everyone in the empire knew this law. And lest we overestimate Esther's importance to the king, Verse 11 says, he's not taking her off the shelf to play with her for about a month. Mordecai's not just asking Esther to risk her life. Mordecai is asking Esther to give up her life. He is asking her to likely give up her life for the chance that King Ashuerus would not have her put to death upon the very sight of her. She's asked to give up her life for the chance the king would listen to her, for the chance the king would be persuaded by her, for the chance the king would somehow change course despite the irrevocable edict, for the chance the people would somehow be spared utter destruction. This is the epitome of an existential threat. This is the wandering Israelites pinned against the Red Sea staring at the Egyptian army that is approaching in fury with absolutely, utterly obliterating power. In this case, we don't even know if the mediator is willing to risk the cost of interceding on behalf of the people. Remember the tension. Remember the question that's been looming over Esther for the past couple of chapters. Will this young woman be willing to identify with the people of God or will she remain a creature of the empire and live as if this world is her home? Now, we know this is part of the issue because Mordecai goes on in their kind of messaging exchange to tell her, look, if you think you are going to escape death by remaining silent, if that's what's going through your mind, keeping your identity hidden, know that you and your father's house will perish. In other words, don't kid yourself, Esther. You will be found out eventually. Let's think hard, though, about what's actually at stake for her. So we can refine the question just a little bit more. What is the essence of the struggle? Where does the conflict of her divided heart actually lie? What's the real temptation here? We know that Esther has a comfortable life, a pampered life, an imperfect life to be sure. But we know that Esther is largely able to live in an isolated sanctuary, removed from the myriad of problems that surround her. All she has to do to keep her life is to do nothing. Now, the stakes for her are incredibly serious. Not just her comfortable life, but Esther's literal life is hanging in the balance. So the question becomes, is Esther willing to risk what it might cost her in this world to remain faithful to God by being identified with his people? As the people of God, that's a question that resonates deeply with us because we are exiles living in a foreign land even now we may or may not ever have our actual life on the line when it when it comes to identifying with the people of god but we certainly understand the temptation to risk that which is comfortable for us we get the temptation to stay safely within our own kind of insulated bubbles of our personal lives rather than to speak the truth in love, for example, or to move into a messy situation, or to publicly align ourselves with values which our current culture finds abhorrent. Today in America, to be identified with the people of God means we often need to state that what we actually believe to be true as those who yearn to live according to God's word. But the temptation to act in our own self-interest rather than to communicate the truth and love or to consider the interests of others above our own, frankly, is often a daily battle. There's a lot of younger folks in here, and kids. I want you to think about something. What if a kid in your school or in your neighborhood is is being made fun of? And what if you think that the kid that's being picked on is is kind of different? And. What if the people that are teasing the kid are the popular kids at school? But as a Christian who's desiring to honor God, you know that what's happening, you know that what's happening is wrong. Wouldn't it be easier to just ignore it? Wouldn't it be easier to just ignore what's happening? Wouldn't it be safer to just kind of laugh or chuckle? so that you are sided with the popular kids and not the different kid that you might think is a little bit weird also? It doesn't matter what your age is. You may have to risk comfort or friends or popularity in order to do what is right. In order to step in, to intervene, to put a stop to the teasing. Can you feel the tension of what you might be thinking about if that situation happens? You might even have to act in complete opposition to your own self-interest. If you go out of your way to, to, to help the other kid feel included in conversation, or maybe to walk across the lunchroom and sit down with them to eat? Or since school's pretty much out now, maybe inviting them over to your house to hang out? All of this will probably be uncomfortable. Make no mistake, your coolness will definitely be on the line. So there are very high stakes But obeying God, kids, is always worth it. Adults, aren't you glad that once high school was over, this never ever happened again, right? (laughs) These kinds of situations. Except, what about casual conversations with neighbors or at work or with family? How many interactions are you in where the temptation is to sneak off quietly? Gradually fade into self-protective silence. Hoping no one will ask you what you think about a policy decision. No one will ask you directly about a controversial moral topic. Or no one will ask you about your convictions about a coworker's convictions that everyone else is celebrating. May God give us the spiritual fortitude to live in a manner worthy of the gospel as we weigh the words of our Savior. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 16 and verse 25. Sometimes the answers are clear and, and, and sometimes we just feel paralyzed to act because of our own inconsistencies. But the next time you're in a situation like that, I want you to consider that God often places imperfect people in imperfect situations at the perfect time to accomplish his perfect plans. What perfect plan might God want to fulfill through you? Now after Mordecai's wake-up call to Esther when he tells her that she won't survive anyway if she tries to hide her identity, Mordecai he essentially preaches the gospel of the Old Testament to Esther in verse 14. If you keep silent, at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. What an incredible statement. God's name is not mentioned, but Mordecai's words are rooted in God's promise to form a people from Abraham whose descendants would be as the stars of the sky. In Genesis 12, God told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. So a certain Agagite descended from the Amalekites might just come to mind now. The reason God will do this is so that all the families of the earth would be blessed. Mordecai knows this. If the people of God are completely wiped out, God's promises are not true. But as a true Jew, Mordecai trusted in the promise of God. He didn't know how or from where help would come, but here is evidence he trusts in the ancient promise of God to his people. Speaking of the gospel preached in the Old Testament, tethered to the promise of Abraham, Paul says in Galatians 3.8, The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying in you shall all the nations be blessed. So we are on very sure biblical footing recognizing Mordecai's statement as the gospel according to Esther. Mordecai follows his gospel proclamation with, with probably the most famous line in the book. And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? So Mordecai's argument is raise your eyes, Esther. Think outside of your insulated bubble. Raise your eyes to the heavens and think of our great God. There's much more going on here. And Esther responds. Thank God Esther responds. If this were a movie, as soon as these words were off Mordecai's tongue, you would hear epic music beginning to crescendo in the background because Esther's courageous response signals the turning point in the book. Verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Can you hear the music crescendoing? (laughs) Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. It doesn't get any more dramatic than that. With these powerful words, Mordecai heads off to talk to the Jews about fasting for Esther. And we note the authority of Esther's tone. That is the answer to the question. Queen Esther, young Jewish Hadassah, has chosen to be identified with God's people and to mediate for them before the king. Now, some commentators speculate whether or not she may have actually been converted here because throughout the rest of the book, from this point on, Esther is portrayed as a true Jew, dignified, courageous, absolutely brilliant. Whatever the case, we take note not only of the authority and valiant nature of Esther's words, but of the rather striking way this royal figure takes the plight of her people upon herself and through life-threatening peril seizes a defining moment through which the people of God will be delivered. Any other kings? Any other mediators come to mind? In this way, Esther points forward to a greater mediator king, who through life-ending peril was faithful at the defining moment of his life on the cross, securing the deliverance of God's people fully and forever. Esther called her people to fast for three days on her behalf so she could be strengthened in her resolve as she risked the wrath of the king and stared down the possibility of death. King Jesus asked his disciples to pray with him in the garden on the eve of what he knew would be his certain death. While the implication of, of Mordecai going to the Jews is that the people fasted on Esther's behalf, those closest to Jesus couldn't even stay awake for an hour to pray with him on the most excruciating night of his life. Life. The disciples fled when he was arrested. They betrayed him when they were confronted. And Jesus was abandoned by his people to bear the full weight of the suffering for his people at his greatest moment of pain. Jesus endured the reality of God's infinite wrath against sin alone. For his people. Just as the wickedness of one man, that is Haman, caused all of God's people to have to face the reality of death, but they were saved through a royal Jewish representative who was willing to identify with them, so too all people face the reality of death because of the sin of one man, Adam. Yet through one royal Jew who was willing to identify with them, all people can be saved through his representation. Esther had to violate the law of the land to appear in the presence of a human king in fear on behalf of her people. Jesus fulfilled the law of God perfectly on behalf of his people so that they could come into the presence of the divine king miraculously without fear. Esther heard the promise heralded by Mordecai of a future deliverer who was to come. And Jesus is the promised deliverer of God's people who has in fact come. So praise God for Jesus who saved his people from their sins as foreshadowed by Esther so long ago, for such a time as this. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are in awe of the beauty and the power and the majesty of Jesus and, and in the way that your word all testifies to him. You are so unbelievably smart. All of the details, all of the circumstances of all these people's lives throughout history. And you are able in your subtle (laughs) or spectacular sovereignty to work everything out exactly as you plan. You place all of these imperfect people in imperfect situations at the perfect time. so that your perfect plans would be perfectly fulfilled as you willed from before there was time, which leaves us in absolute awe of who you are. Father, thank you that Jesus is a different kind of king. Thank you that he's a man of sorrows who bore our guilt, and our shame, and our pain, and instead clothed us with his radiant beauty so that we might be able to enter into your presence free and joyful forever. Let the reality of that truth, that is the good news of the gospel, to fuel our worship now. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.